Thank you very much. It's good to be here this morning. Thanks for waiting a week for me. Thanks for coming out today, too. Uh, Mike and I had a little powwow out on the uh, entrance driveway there this morning. We were putting down some salt, and we, we just had a good time out there, didn't we, Mike? It was, we, we, were, we had some laughs. and um, Yeah, so anyways, say thank you for coming out today, and, and I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to get into another series. And originally when I was just thinking about this, I'm like, man, thinking of last week, how great is it to have internet where you could log on remotely and, and join church service. But now I'm realizing how great is it that we have it today too, because it's the same situation all over again, just with, with ice instead of a bunch of snow. So I'm, I'm very thankful for, for the internet. And the reason I'm thankful for the internet is because it's changed very drastically over the years and quite quickly too. Uh, I'm sure many of you can remember the days. Uh, I have many stories, but one of my favorite things to do was in Target. I never left Target without a handful of AOL CDs. I didn't know what to do with those CDs at all. I didn't know how to actually set up internet service or dial up or anything like that, but I just knew that that's something I needed to have apparently because there was a bunch of them at the front of the store. So I'd always take the, the CDs with me when I went outside, but I'm thankful now that the internet doesn't run off a CD that you grab at Target anymore. It's something that just gets hooked up instantaneously at, at your house. Um, the internet's changed a lot. It's really changed a lot. The speed of it's changed a lot. The amount of things that you can do with it has changed a lot. Um, the way that we understand it has changed a lot. I remember when, when my dad first got internet uh, at our house, uh, I was obsessed with cars. And I got on his laptop and was looking at, it was just called cars.com. It was just a whole bunch of supercars. And uh, he got all frustrated because he couldn't, figure out, he couldn't figure out where the X was on the page to get the cars off the screen. <laughs> you see, our understanding of how the internet works has changed significantly. But one thing that hasn't changed, if you've noticed, is the name of it. It's still called the internet. Although it's so different now, it's still called the internet. And the same principle applies to temples. You see, even though the way that God dwells with us has changed drastically, God still dwells in temples. The name itself has not changed. And that's why we are entering into this series called Temples. Because we want to understand what it means for God to dwell with us. And we know that God still dwells in temples. So it's not an outdated term whatsoever. It's actually just the dwelling place of God. So I want to start off by just giving a little bit of context and background on what temples are before we move into the actual content for today's message. Temples, simply put, are where gods dwell. And yes, I said gods, plural. The reason why is because in the ancient Near East, anybody in that time would have known that a temple is where a god would dwell. There was many temples in the ancient Near East, even within Scripture, we find other gods' temples referenced. One of my favorite stories uh, comes from the Old Testament when uh, they took the Philistines, had captured the Ark of, of Israel, the Ark of the Covenant, and they took the Ark and they put it into the temple of their god. If you know their god's name, it was Dagon. 
And they put the ark in Dagon's temple. And that was the Philistines' way of signifying that we have defeated the God of Israel, who is Yahweh. So we're going to put him into our temple because now he's subject to our God, Dagon. And so they went to bed that night probably feeling great because of the victory they had won. But they had a surprise when they woke up in the morning. They found their God face down on the ground. And so they thought, well, maybe a stiff wind had come in through the curtains or something like that. So they put Dagon back up. They checked the foundation and they went to bed the next night, probably still glowing because of the victory they had. But then when they woke up the next morning, they found an even greater surprise. They found Dagon not only face down on the ground, but they found his arms, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe his head was actually also fallen off of the structure. Now, this is um, a little bit grotesque, but here's the background on what that means. Uh, in ancient times, when you would defeat another nation, one of the ways that you would show uh, utter domination of that nation would actually be to dismember some of their warriors by taking off their arms and even beheading them. That was your way of showing that you had annihilated another nation. Well, Yahweh was being very clear. You may put me inside of your temple, but you have not defeated me. And I am greater than the God that represents this temple here. So although that God dwells in there, he's not greater than me. He's not greater than me. So temples are where gods dwell. And temples were also holy places. They were holy places. They were not made for mere humans. I think one misconception we have is that the temple was similar to kind of like the church that we would have today. And that simply was not the case. They are very, very different. In fact, I'm not sure that we have anything very much like a temple of the Old Testament today um, at all. And the, the church structure itself certainly does not represent it. Because it was not made for humans to just walk into and, 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 and go through day to day. You see, if you remember, the, the high priest could only go into the, the holy of holy places one time a year. So it just wasn't made for, for that kind of, of traffic. And it had to be treated with the highest of care and regard. It, it needed to be treated with respect. And with those two things simply, I'm hoping that now you can begin to see how temples were all throughout Scripture, even if it didn't explicitly say this is a temple. Because if a temple is a holy place for a God, then maybe you can see that the Garden of Eden was actually, in fact, a temple. Although he never said, oh, you are in a temple, you know that it was a place that was set apart from other places that God dwelled in, and so therefore it was a temple. The tabernacle that Moses had moving throughout the wilderness, that they eventually built the full tabernacle around, that was a temple because it was a set apart place for God to dwell in. Obviously, the temple built by Solomon was a temple, but it was so because it was a place set apart for God to dwell in. But let's go one step further. Did you know that Jesus himself was a temple? He was a temple because he was a set apart person in which the fullness of God dwelled within. And within that, people were able to access God through his life. Therefore, Jesus was actually a temple of God. Did you know that we, right now, in this room, not referring to the structure itself, but we, the people of God, 
are the temple of God. Why? Because we are a set-apart people in which God dwells so that the world can know Him. Are you starting to pick up the theme here? And finally, at the end, it talks about the whole of new creation. It talks about the new heavens and the new earth, which itself is a temple, place where God dwells, and we will get to dwell with Him. Now, here's something to notice about the temples. The, the temple shapes everything. The temple shapes everything. When Israel was coming out of Egypt, it was just this big mass of people. They were moving from location to location, probably had very little order to it whatsoever. When Moses said, hey, we're going to stop here when the clouds stop moving, they probably just plopped their tent down wherever they could find a place to plop the tent down. They set it up and they stayed there the night. They waited to see if the cloud would move the next day or if the fire would move by night. But there was probably very little organization to it. But finally there came a moment when the tabernacle was set up in their midst. And the tabernacle they knew was, it was a temple. It was where God dwelled among them. But something changed when the tabernacle was set up. See, now the formation of the camp had order to it. And all the 12 tribes of Israel, they had a very specific order that when they stopped moving, when they set up the tabernacle for the place that they were going to stay, they knew, oh, we don't just pick any place to go. We go to our tribe and we make sure that all of our tents are actually facing the tabernacle of God, which is now in the middle of the camp. Because the temple shapes everything. It brought order and it brought a singular vision to the people of Israel. Daniel, if you know the story of Daniel, there's a moment when, he's, when they're trying to catch him because they want to bring him before the king to get him in trouble because they're, they're jealous of him. And it says that Daniel was praying in his room, but it says that he was praying out, facing, outside, uh, facing out of a window. And what was that window pointed towards? It was pointed towards Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem was the city of God. It was the place where God dwelt. And so for Daniel, even the direction of his prayers was shaped by where the temple was, where God's presence was. It shaped everything. And here's one of the greatest challenges that you and I will face day to day. If we know that the temple shapes everything, the greatest challenge is, can we hold the formation? Can we hold the formation? Can we resist the temptation to just drop our tent down wherever we feel like it? Or can we be cognizant enough to say, I need to order my life around God's presence day in and day out? Can we hold the formation? And unfortunately, Scripture tells us time and time again, the answer to that is no. We have a very hard time holding the formation. Right at the beginning of the story, Israel breaks the formation. See, ironically, while Moses was up on the mountain of God, he was on Mount Sinai meeting with God. And Moses was actually receiving the instructions for how to build the tabernacle. While he's doing this, Israel's down there and they're creating a new God for themselves. They created the golden calf. And the reason why this was so egregious to God, 
was because the number one commandment, the number one commandment was, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And so, while Moses is up there, uh, as Aaron says it, he just threw the things into the fire, and poof, out came this golden calf. I'm sure that's not how that actually happened, but he was trying to cover himself. Um, But God tells Moses, you need to go back down to the camp, because I hear the sound of, of war down there. And he goes back to find this golden calf. And it has dire consequences. Because if you look at Exodus 33, 1-3, this is what the Lord says to Moses in response to Israel's rebellion. He says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you, because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. Sounds like a road trip with kids, huh? (laughs) Here's the sad part about all this. God is breaking relationship with His people. He's breaking relationship with His people. Even if there's a subtle thing if you notice, He tells Moses, He says, the people that you brought up out of Egypt. God is no longer even taking credit for the work that He clearly did for them. And the irony goes even deeper because when they created the golden calf, Aaron presents the calf to the people and he says, Israel, here's your gods that brought you up out of Egypt. They had already given the credit to a man-made God that something, something that only Yahweh did for them. And Yahweh's kind of returning the favor now saying, you brought them up out of Egypt. But the saddest part is, he says to them, Later, I don't have this on the screen, but right afterwards, he tells Moses to go and tell the Israelites, he says, go and have them take off the ornaments that they're wearing. And what you need to know, what you need to know is that these were given to Israel when they left Egypt as a sign of God's blessing and of God's basically marriage to them as a people. These ornaments were kind of like a wedding ring that you would wear. And so when God commanded them to remove them, he was essentially saying, I'm divorcing myself from you because you've chosen another wife in my place. You've chosen another husband in my place. You have cheated on me with another God. But the real meat of the story comes in with Moses' response. In Exodus 33, 12 through 17, he says this, Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? 
And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. The title of this message today is called Stay Different. Stay Different. You see, Moses, look at what he, he fights back with God over. Yeah, it's about we want you to go with us. But here's the consequence if you don't go with us. He says, what else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? If your tabernacle is not with us, if your presence is not with us, then what makes us different? The answer is nothing. Nothing makes us different. We are different because of God's presence. We are different because of God's presence. As the church, we cannot afford to forget this very, very simple thing. That we are different because of God's presence. But I want to qualify that very quickly. We're not different just because God is with us. Just the fact that He's with us is not necessarily what makes us different. Yes, to a degree, because other nations do not have God with them. So, yes, there's that. But I think it goes way deeper than just the literal fact of Him being with us. You see... Uh, a few weeks ago, I impulsively bought a piano on, uh, on OfferUp, like a, a used, used item site. I was literally sitting at the counter with Keela, and I was like, I, I kind of want to get a piano. And within two hours, I had a piano sitting in the living room. Now, having the piano in my living room does not make me a great piano player. I've stood next to that, we, we, don't have a, we don't have a huge condo, so I've spent a lot of time in close vicinity to that piano. And I can tell you, in all the time being next to it, it has not made me a better player. I like to uh, space out a lot. I've stared at that piano a lot in the past three weeks. And I can tell you, it has not made me a better piano player. I've also cycled through all the funny noises that can be made on the piano. I've tested out every sound combination there is, and it still has not made me a better piano player. But I have found that playing air piano in the car, that has made me a great piano player. No, what makes you a great piano player? It's, it's learning. And it's growing in the actual craft. It's developing that relationship between you and the instrument, understanding how it works. That is what makes you a great piano player. And there's no shortcut around it. There's no other way around it. And I think the same applies with our relationship with God. Yes, we have God with us. But what truly makes us different is that we're different because we desire God's wisdom. We desire God's wisdom. Now follow, track with me here. When, when Israel makes this disastrous mistake to serve another God, and God says, I'm, I'm not going to go with you now, you'll notice that God was still willing to give them the land. He was still going to give them the land. So without a land to call their own, Israel was just a bunch of nomads traveling through the land. Yes, they were a body of people, but what actually gave them legitimacy as a nation 
was the fact that they had land to call their own. But at this point, they had no place to call home at all. But God was willing to give them the land, but he refused to go with them. Now, what's interesting about this is you would say, well, why would he give them the land? If he was so upset with them, if he was essentially divorcing himself from them, why would he still give them the land? Well, he actually says it in there. He says, go to the land that I have promised to who? Well, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God was saying, I have made a covenant with them. And I'm going to uphold that covenant with them, even though you have been rebellious. I will not go back on my promise. But, he says, I will not enter into a covenant with you, though. You see, Moses had brought the Ten Commandments down from the mountain when he came back to Israel. But he actually smashed them on the ground, which was a way of saying the covenant literally has been broken between us. And up to this point, God had not created a new covenant with Israel. He just said, you can go forward now to the land, and I'll even send an angel with you to help get you there. But I'm not going to enter into a new covenant with you anymore. Now, to some people, that could have been like, okay, well, at least we still get the land. Like, I guess out of all this, there's something good. But we see Moses really rise up to the occasion as the man that God set over his people, and the reason why he set him over His people. And this is why Moses was thinking into the future. He may have thought to himself, okay, we get the land. Uh, That's a good thing. We get the land, we become a legitimate nation. On top of that, God even He even fights for us to obtain the land. But what happens when we get there? What happens when we actually get in the land, we settle down, we start to build communities and stuff like that? What happens? Well, I think Moses knew that. Without God with them, they ended up behaving like every other nation around them. They would eventually end up integrating the gods of the nations around them. They would end up marrying into the other nations and and they would just act like every nation that was around them. There would be, as Moses said, nothing unique about them. Nothing that actually distinguished them from the people around them. You see... Everybody has land, but not everybody has law. Everybody has land, but not everybody has law. What makes us different from Canada is not the fact that we possess land. What makes us different from Canada is about the laws that govern this land. And that's what makes us different than any other country in the world. It's about the laws. It's about the way we order our society. It's about our culture. That's what makes us unique. And the same was true for Israel. It wasn't the possession of land that was a distinguishing mark. Every nation around them had their own land. What distinguished them was their behavior within the land. That's what made them different. In order for them to live in a way that pointed others towards God, they needed God's wisdom. They needed God's ordering. When we live in covenant relationship with God... We have unlimited access to God's wisdom. So again, yes, it's good that God is actually with us. But what actually distinguishes you is what you do with that. What you do with that access. We are different because of the burning passion that we carry to be more and more like God 
in every area of our lives. I think that's the reason why James said in James 1.5, he says, and he's not talking to just anybody. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to the people of God in the New Testament. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. James is reminding them, don't forget, you have unlimited access to God's wisdom. And it's that wisdom applied in your life that actually makes you different. For Israel, the laws of God were not just a whole bunch of legalistic documents. The laws of God was actually God's wisdom. He was saying, look, if I were to order a nation, wink, wink, this is how I would do it. And so if they wanted to be like God, like the nation that God was calling them to be, they would follow his laws. The laws was actually a good thing. They wanted the laws of God. That was, that was a time of rejoicing for them. But it required them to actually put those things into practice. You see, when we talk about this whole concept of being different, there's a reason why we talk about difference. And it's because difference is a very powerful attractor. You see, marketers know this very well. If you've seen any commercial in the last 25 years, you'll know that they are showing you what life could be like. They are creating an ideal situation so that you look at it and you differentiate yourself from what you see. You see an ideal state and you realize where you're at and how you don't live up to that. And then all of a sudden their product comes in and their product becomes a thing that would close the gap for you and get you to the ideal state. But the whole tool there is just difference. They are showing you the difference between your life and what your life could be. So it drives us to move, it drives us to move towards that new life. And God knows this. And that's why God uses difference to drive us and attract others towards Him. And this brings me to my next point: that we are different. Because our differences attract others to God. I'm going to say that one more time. We are different because our differences attract others to God. Look at Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 6. This is when uh, Moses was giving them parting words before they went into the promised land. And he was kind of recapping everything that had happened. All their journeys, all their uh, rebellions towards God. And he's recapping the law as well. And within this, he tells Israel this. He says, See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations, who will hear about all these decrees and say... Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Did you notice what the other nations were going to observe? They weren't going to stand and say, man, look at all the land they have. They're so much different than us. We wish we had land. No, that wasn't it. They were saying, wow, look at the wisdom that they display in their, their lives. Look at the wisdom that their society is ordered around. That is different. Not only, not only is it different, that's attractive to us. We want to be like that. So we see God is using Israel. He's saying, if you order yourself around my wisdom, you're going to be different. 
But it's not just to be different as some prideful thing. No, it's to be different so that others look at it and they're actually attracted, not to you, but they're attracted to me. Because it's my wisdom that you've ordered yourself around. You see, your faith and your confidence in God should make others truly question their decision to say that God's just a figment of our imagination. The way that you go about your life should actually cause other people to question their assumptions about God. It should cause others to question the way that they may neglect God or not follow God in their life. Your love for the outsider should give hope to the ones who feel like they have nowhere to belong. Your pursuit of peace should disarm the argumentative, divided people around you. The way that you go about your life should actually cause the people around you to say, hmm, that's interesting. I want to be like that. I want to know where that comes from. I've heard it said many times before that the only God that many people will ever see is the God in you. Many people will never hear the gospel laid out for them. But what they do have access to is the life that you live in front of them. You have the opportunity to show them what God is like through your own life. And the truth is this. Everyone, everyone is truly attracted to God. Everyone is truly attracted to God. We are the ones that have to be different. And I have to break the news to you. I know we, we would love for this to be the case, but it's just not... We cannot outsource this to anyone. We cannot outsource the responsibility to be different, to bear God's name, to bear His character to anyone. We can't outsource it to the music that we listen to. We can't outsource it to the bumper stickers on our cars. We can't outsource it to the activities that our church even does. No, the burden falls on us to be different. Another thing that the burden falls on us to do is pray. And this brings me to my concluding point today is this. We are different because we care about, we care more about others' relationships more than just our own. See, Moses faced a test from God. Moses faced a test from God. If you remember in that, that opening section that we read, Moses is petitioning God to continue on with them. And God says something interesting. After the first petition that Moses brings to him, God says, I will give you rest and I will go with you. But Moses' immediate response is this. He says, if you don't go with us, if you don't go with us, then we will not move up from here. We will not go on from here. You see, God actually promised Moses, okay, I'll go with you. I'll stay with you. But Moses interceded for God to go with them. And he took the opportunity to walk in God's blessing for himself. And he set that aside in favor of the people that he was called to serve. And he said, this is bigger than just me. This is bigger than just my blessing. 
This is bigger than just my relationship with God. My responsibility is not just for myself, it's for those around me as well. You see, the more you understand your standing with God, the greater your concern grows for other people's standing with God. When we know that we've been declared righteous, our concern grows for those who are not right with God. The more and more that you realize the unconditional love that God has poured out on your life, naturally the consequence is that you begin to look at the people around you and you have a burden for them to also encounter that same unconditional love. You see, when God pours something out on you, it becomes a calling for the people around you. Don't forget that we are a prophetic people, which means we need to have a prophetic edge to our witness. This whole thing of God actually testing somebody is, wasn't just with Moses. It happened multiple times. If you remember Abraham himself, God and two angels came to Abraham and they said, we are going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham himself was safe. He was nowhere near Sodom and Gomorrah. His family was not at risk from anything that was going to happen. But what did Abraham do? He interceded for the righteous that were in Sodom and Gomorrah. It was the test. God was actually testing Abraham. Will you think of more people than just yourself? Will you intercede for people outside of your immediate family? Will you think of the consequences that will fall on them more than just your family? Think about Joseph. Joseph was put in a position where he could provide abundantly. What was the test for Joseph? Will you intercede for the people that have wronged you? Will you intercede for the brothers that tried to kill you? Will you intercede for the people that have rejected you, misunderstood you? But even when you're in a place of authority or in a place of blessing, will you still intercede for them? And he does it with Moses, and he does it time and time again after that. Even with David. David had all of his palaces set up when he got settled in Jerusalem. What was the test? Will you think about where I dwell? Will you think about where I dwell? And that's how we got the temple that Solomon built. I think the application here is pretty clear. I think it's pretty clear that we are called to pray for the lost. Moses displays it right here. He intercedes for the ones who have wronged God. He intercedes for the ones that are not in right standing with God. This is what I love. He turns God's proclamation over him into his intercession for them. God said, I will go with you. And then he says, let me pray now that you'll go with them. He took God's proclamation over him and turned it into intercession for them. I want to close just on this story. Uh, recently, I had felt this heavy burden to pray for one of my friends specifically. And I didn't quite know what the reason was, but I just began to pray for him and pray for him. And um, within very short order, within like one or two weeks after, after that uh, initial conviction, uh, his fiance came to me and was telling me, she's like, you know, the weirdest thing happened. He the other day told me that he wants to start going to church. He said that when we, when we get married, he wants us to find a church home and begin going to it. And she said, but what's even more odd 
is that he doesn't want to go to a church that followed the tradition of his family or the tradition that he was raised in. She said, he actually said that he felt like it was not proper to pray to saints any longer. And so he didn't want to do that anymore. And he wants us to find a, a, a church home to get established once we get married. And I found that very interesting because I hadn't talked to him about it. I haven't told him anything about the whole thing of praying to saints or anything like that at all. But I can't help but miss, I don't think there was a coincidence there. I think there's a reason why God had placed him on my heart. Because God was calling him to something greater. And I think it illustrates just the point very simply of, man, I could have taken that prayer time and just prayed for myself, you know. But I, I would encourage you guys, how often do you say, I'm actually going to partition my prayer time here. Maybe you actually start by praying for others first and pray for yourself last. Maybe you reorganize your prayer time to begin to focus on other people around you so that you begin to take God's proclamation over your life and you turn it into the intercession for the people that are around you. You may have a great church home. What about the people around you? Do they have a great church home too? Man, pray into them. Pray that God would supply that for them. If you guys would, if you just bow your heads for a moment. As we move to a close, I just felt this morning as I was preparing, as we talk about this subject of God being with us, can't help but ignore the fact that some of you may question if that's actually the case. You may think, yeah, I've confessed Christ as my Savior. I've been in church for years. But I'm not sure that God's actually with me. I, I question that sometimes. I feel like maybe I've made too many mistakes for God to actually be with me anymore. Maybe, maybe you feel like the Israelites, like you've been abandoned by God. And I just want to encourage you today that that's just not the case. That's just not the case. God has not abandoned you. He has not left you. But specifically, I think that we can learn something from the Israelites. And I think what we can learn is that it's not just about holding the, the badge of the title of being a Christian. It's about what we do with that. It's about what we do with that access. It's about the way that we engage God in our private time. It's about the way that we engage God in our worship and in our prayer. And church, one thing I can promise you right now is as you do that, that question, that nagging question, is God truly with me? It disappears very, very quickly. And so right now in this moment, I just want us to renew that vow. doesn't matter where you're at. Maybe that's not a question you have in your mind, and that's totally fine. But let's just renew that vow that we have with God. I think Jenna encapsulated it so well this morning. This is just the vow of yes. It's the vow of yes. That you, God, will be the first one that we go to in our time of need. You will be the first one that we go to in our time of confusion. You will be the first one that we go to in our time of joy. So, Father, we just come before you as your people today. And we just give you our yes all over again. We give you our yes all over again. And, Father, we thank you. We thank you 
that you dwell with us, that you go with us, Father. We thank you that you call us your people. But we ask that going beyond just the titles, that we would truly become your people, that we would become different, Father God, because of our relationship with you, because of the way that we pull upon your wisdom in your presence, Father God. We ask that you would make us a people of intercession for our neighbors, for our co-workers, Father God, for the people that are around us that don't know you. Father, we thank you for being with us. We ask that you with us would begin to expand to the people that are around us, and it would turn turn into them being with you as well. So, Father, we just pray all these things in your beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Well, church, thanks once again for being here. Be blessed as you go. I want to encourage you one last time. Stay different.